We've been working through Exodus, and I gotta say, first off, Mosaic Church, this has been an amazing month for me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been really good for me, and it's been slightly therapeutic because it's been a good outlet for me to uh, be able to share some stuff that I've been working on and 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 studying. We did the Jesus prequel book that's out this Exodus book, little booklet thing that's coming out. And and I had to do a, a big, long series of small group videos for some people in Omaha. And I uh, was just doing a video shoot for Jesus prequel stuff on Friday. And, you know, talking into a camera is very artificial. And, um, you know, sitting in the basement with your books is, for me, uh, fun. And it's what I do. But to have uh, a, a vibrant group of people like this to be able to share this stuff with and then to get feedback that says, you know, yeah, th- this, this stuff is interesting. You know, I, I think just on kind of like the personal confessional level, I, I often wonder uh, if I'm just a little too nerdy to be able to connect with people, you know. So, so it's been... <laughs> <laughs> so the man who's been hospitalized by fireworks is going, no, man, you're totally not nerdy at all. I <laughs> but uh, this has been really, really good for me, and I, I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Thank you for engaging with me. Uh, in Exodus, in the first week, we looked at how uh, the, the, the book basically goes from, in the beginning, the people are in slavery, and they're... They're like crying out to God, and it really opens with this deep sense of where is God? It seems like he's not around. It seems like he's forgotten us. It seems like he's abandoned us. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Exodus, you've got a a tabernacle, which is just a word we use for a tent. You have a tent that's been built, and uh, God is dwelling in that tent in the midst of the people. And if you're ever wondering, well, what's the book of Exodus really about? Well, yeah, it's about, you know, getting out of Egypt. But really what it's about is going from a very seemingly absent God to, hey, God's right here in our midst. Um, and, and the thing is that the, the first 14, 15 chapters of Exodus are, for us, a pretty exciting read. And then you roll into a, a whole bunch of regulations that seem really, really weird to us. I mean, the, the last 15 chapters of the book are regulations for constructing the tabernacle and then a description of them actually building the tabernacle. And it's easy to look at it and be like, uh, that, why is this even in the Bible? <laughs> you know? So first off, uh, picture. Can we have the picture? Um, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the tabernacle. This is a model that somebody did. But basically what, what we're dealing with is a tent. And the tent, the, the front two-thirds of the tent is called the holy place. And then the back third of the tent is called the most holy place. And, and, and the idea is that God is going to live in this tent and the, and the tent is going to be in the middle of the Israelites, right in the middle of the camp. And it's a, it's, a, it's a symbolic way of God being able to show, hey, I'm right here with you. 
I'm right here in your midst, okay? And uh, a couple of things um, you can tell, first off, it's not super large. Uh, Sometimes I think people get the impression that this is like some massive thing that's going on. It's not very big, and what I want to draw your attention to is the tent itself, which I don't know. I, I to me, it's it's a little bit ugly. I'm I, I don't know. I'm thinking if I'm God and I'm having and I have to live in a tent and I'm gonna. I don't know. I would probably bling it a little differently. But anyway, uh, then you've got uh, the the little yellow box where the dude is standing. Okay, that's the altar, and that's where they would do. Uh, the burnt sacrifices and burn stuff, all right? So this is what's going to be relevant to what we're talking about today in terms of being able to visualize what's up, all right? Now, here's what we're going to do. Probably for the first time in your life, you're going to hear some preaching out of Leviticus. You should be excited because this, this is amazing, all right? But what happens is from Exodus chapter 19 through the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way through the book of Leviticus, and all the way to chapter 10 of the book of Numbers, that whole swath of scripture is set at Mount Sinai. All right? So they set up the tabernacle in Exodus, and at the very end of Exodus, God God sort of tangibly makes his presence known with the big cloud thing above the tabernacle, and then you roll into Leviticus. And in Leviticus, you basically get a bunch of regulations for how a holy God is going to live in the midst of unholy people. All right, that's, that's the basic gist. And what I want to do is take a quick look at some stuff in Leviticus chapter 4. All right, so if you'd like to follow along, pull up your phone and go to Leviticus chapter 4. Uh, And I'm going to start in verse 3. So, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering, or some of your Bibles will have a footnote, uh, or purification offering. And actually, purification offering's better for, you know, ask me in the hallway. I have to be careful about getting overly nerdy in a sermon and giving you so much detail that you doze off. Um, Without defect, a sin sin offering for the sinning is committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. So the entrance to this thing. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the anointed priest takes some of the bull's blood, carries it into the actual tent, okay, but just the front two-thirds part, and he dips his finger into the blood and sprinkles some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuaries. And that curtain is the divider between the front two-thirds of the tabernacle and the back one-third. And the idea is that God is in that back third. And the ark with the uh, Ten Commandment tablets placed in it, uh, that was in the very back part. If you're wondering, by the way, what the ark would have looked like, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They nailed it. I mean, seriously, in terms of what the the design of the ark is pretty awesome. Anyway, uh, the the priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he pours out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
He shall remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, all the fat that is connected to the internal organs and so on and so forth, and, and he does this thing. Uh, the details are not important for our purposes. Uh, here's, the, here's the basic idea. The priest, and, and we're talking about if uh, a priest sins, the priest brings uh, this offering, puts his hand on it, and in the, uh, in, the, in the ancient Near East that Israel was a part of, putting a hand on an animal for a sacrifice as just a way of saying, this one's mine, this is my offering, that's totally normal. And uh, they would kill the animal, and then, this is where it gets a little weird for us, sprinkle blood, and basically where they're sprinkling blood is inside the tent in the first two-thirds and on that altar, that little yellow box on the picture. All right? You with me so far? Hopefully I didn't lose you yet. And then verse 13. If the whole Israelite community sins and does stuff. And then if you, if you read it, it's very similar to what we just read because it's the exact same, it's the exact same sacrifice. And with that, they're going to sprinkle blood in the same places. But then look at verse 22. When a leader sins, or a, an, a, some translations, an elder, one of, the, one of the people helping lead the nation. Uh, and then you get similar stuff. And then in verse 27, if any Joshmo member of the community sins, uh, you sprinkle blood. But here's, here's the thing. Uh, here's the stuff that, that we've got to get in order to understand what's going on, okay? You're killing the animal and you're sprinkling blood. The chapter is divided by social standing, right? So first it's a section about a priest, then it's a section about the whole community, then it's a section about a leader, and then it's a, a section about just whoever. And here's the big key to understanding what's going on here, okay? When a priest sins... You sprinkle blood inside the tent in the holy place, the first two-thirds, and on the altar. If you're not a priest, right, any member of the community that is non-priest, you only sprinkle blood on the altar, the little yellow box in the picture, all right? The, The point here is that you only sprinkle blood where you go, right? Priests have to operate in the tent, they go there. So they have to sprinkle blood there. But the average person never goes in this thing, all right? And one of the big misconceptions about uh, the temple or the tabernacle is like, this is where people gather to worship. This is not where people gather to worship. You don't show up to the tent on Sunday mornings to sing songs to the Lord. That's not what this is about, all right? This is God giving a a very physical, easy-to-see representation of his presence in the midst of the people. So this is God's house. So you you don't just, like, casually stroll in and be like, Hey, God, what's up? Uh, That's how you get struck dead, all right? And the idea in the book of Leviticus is, is God's holiness is to be taken critically seriously. That's the, whole, that's the whole thing, okay? God's holiness. I'll tell you that um, my teacher, the guy uh, that I did my PhD studies with, 
Uh, his name is Gordon Wenham, and he wrote a commentary. I think I may have said this before. He wrote a commentary in 1979 on the book of Leviticus. And uh, he told me that in the entirety of his career as, as an academic, as a Bible scholar, the single most impactful thing he ever did on his own faith was write a commentary on the book of Leviticus. Because you cannot do any amount of serious study in the book of Leviticus and not walk away with a deep, deep sense of the holiness of God. It's like, well, what, wait, what, is, what does holiness mean even? Holy basically just means separate, apart from, other than. He is very, very other than us. He is very separate from us. He's very distinct, okay? And that's, that's the idea of holiness. So, so if you're going to approach a holy God, but we're all human, right? We all have garbage. We all have junk. We've all sinned. So how does that work? All right? Well, that's what these sacrifices are for. Um, let me give you another example of a similar thing. In Leviticus 16, all right? Leviticus 16 are the regulations for the Day of Atonement, or maybe you've heard of the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur. That's, that's what this is, the Day of Atonement. So Leviticus 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain. In other words, he's not supposed to just casually stroll into the back third of the tent whenever he darn well feels like it. All right. So verse three, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. And then you get regulations for the same basic thing that you had in chapter 4. You get regulations for this purification offering. And what Aaron is supposed to do is kill the animal and sprinkle the blood. But this time, he sprinkles blood on the altar out front, in the holy place, the first two-thirds of the tent, but also in the back third of the tent, the most holy place. And this he only does once a year, and he only does it on this day, the Day of Atonement. Okay, so the idea, the idea that you've got to get in order for any of this to make sense is that you only sprinkle blood where you go. So if you're not a priest, you never go in the tent, you only sprinkle blood out at the altar. If you're a priest... You go in the front part of the tent, so you sprinkle blood on the altar in the front part of the tent. If you're a high priest, you go into the most holy place once a year, so you have to sprinkle blood on the altar, on the front two-thirds of the tent, and in the back third of the tent. Now, the question is, why are we sprinkling blood all over the place? Right? Smelly, disgusting, gross. What, what is going on? Well... The basic ancient Israelite view of blood is that life is in the blood. And you get this even in the time of Jesus, right? Some people come up to him and Jesus is like, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Like, what? Drink your blood? You're just a freak, man. Right? But what's he saying? Life is in the blood. And, and he's pointing to the fact 
that if we don't have Jesus' life in us, we ultimately have no hope of eternal life. Life is in the blood. So you're sprinkling blood all over the place. And back at uh, Leviticus 16, I want you to look at verse 15. He slaughters the goat for the sin offering for the people and takes its blood behind the curtain uh, to do with it as he did with the bull's blood. Sprinkles it on the atonement cover and in front of it, that's all the way in the back third. In this way, look at this line. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. This is the key, all right? This is Leviticus 16, 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. What the heck does that mean? Why is this guy telling me it's the key? I don't even know what's going on. All right, here's the deal. First off, the word atone. This is not a word that we use in everyday language, right? I mean, I... For me, I don't know about you, but for me, the only time I ever hear the word atone is when someone is talking about Jesus. Okay? So, first off, uh, what, what are we even talking about? Well, I'll tell you, the Hebrew word that's translated atone means to cleanse. All right? It means to clean something, to wipe something off, to clean it. Okay? So, what you're being told is that in this way, what way? By sprinkling blood all over the place... You're cleaning something. That's a little bit weird. Try that sometimes. Sprinkle some blood around. You know, oh, I cut my finger. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to clean the countertop. You know, it's, it's, it's weird to us, okay? It's weird to us. But what you're being told is by these sacrifices, you are cleaning something. And then the question is, what are we cleaning? And I'm just going to tell you that the normal view uh, and by normal, what I mean is probably most of you, if I were to say what's being cleansed, would say the people. This is how the people get cleansed of their sins. Problem is, that's wrong. It is not the people who are being cleansed by these sacrifices. Okay? And the, the Hebrew is very clear. The English translation kind of obscures it. Hebrew has these tiny little words that we call particles that you can track that distinguish the difference between a direct, a direct object, sorry for the grammar lesson, but it distinguishes from things that are receiving the action of a verb and things on whose behalf the work is done. Okay? So in other words, we might say that so-and-so hit a home run for the Red Sox. And we understand that the home run is what got hit. But we understand that the Red Sox were the beneficiaries of the event. Okay? Same thing here. By sprinkling the blood around, you're cleansing something on somebody else's behalf. And what's going on here is that what is actually being cleansed is the tabernacle. Okay? The... This statement then in verse 16, what it's saying is that in this way, by sprinkling blood all over the place, he will cleanse the most holy place 
because of the uncleanness of the people. You see, by being in the midst of people, God's house has been defiled and it must be cleansed if God is going to live there. That's what's going on in these sacrifices that we're reading about. Uh, I'm a professor, so it's at this point that I always say, does, does this make sense? Are you with me so far? Which you don't usually do in church, but are you, are, are you with me? Verse 20, same sort of deal. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he brings the live goat. In other words, when Aaron has finished cleansing the most holy place, that's the back third of the tent, the tent of meeting, that's the front two-thirds of the tent, and the altar, the little gold box in the picture. When Aaron has finished cleansing the tabernacle, he brings forward the live goat. Verse 21, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He then sends the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. This is sometimes called the scapegoat. All right? The only time in Leviticus that sins are transferred to an animal is the scapegoat, and you take that animal and you get it as far away from God's tent as possible. The common misunderstanding, and it's a common misunderstanding because we know about Jesus and we import Jesus stuff onto Leviticus. And the misunderstanding is that our, our sins are covered by uh, killing an animal. The animal substitutes for us. So I lay the hand on the animal and that animal, animal dies and it's on my behalf. And that is not how it works in Leviticus. That is not what's going on. What you do is you sprinkle the blood to cleanse the tabernacle. The only time you actually put sins on an animal, metaphorically, is the scapegoat. And that sucker, you get out into the wilderness. And not only do you get it as far away from the tent as possible, but you send someone with it to make sure the stupid thing doesn't wander back (laughs) into the camp. Okay? The whole point... The whole point of what we're looking at in chapters 4 and 16 is you've got to keep God's house clean because that's the only way a holy God can live in the midst of an unholy people. And these sacrifices are designed to cleanse God's house. Because ultimately what God wants is relationship with the people. And so what he's doing in the book of Exodus is he's creating a way that rather than feeling like he's distant out there, we don't know where he is, we can say, oh, look, he's in the tent right over there. So why don't, why don't we have a tent? Well, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. So now we're in, uh, we're in New Testament times, right? So we're like 12, 1,400 years past the story we were just reading. And you've got someone reflecting on what Jesus did, who Jesus was, what his ministry was. Chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. That's this thing. A tabernacle was set up 
In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, right? He's reiterating what we were just talking about. And it had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory. What the heck is that? Go watch Indiana Jones. Overshadowing the atonement cover. But it's true. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, right? It's like typical professor. I'm going to give you a bunch of detail and say we can't discuss the details. When everything has been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. That's Leviticus 16. And never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle, that thing, was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating, here's the key line, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. These sacrifices that you have in Leviticus are designed to keep God's house clean. They are not designed to cleanse a person's conscience. And then the author of Hebrews goes into some stuff about wills, using a a will as an example. And then down in verse 21, in the same way, the priest sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies, right? We just read about that. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Okay? I, I love the book of Hebrews because he gets Leviticus. It, it excites me. All right? But do you see the point? We're, we're cleansing. This is that atonement thing. Everything, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Okay? And Leviticus 4, at the very last line of Leviticus chapter 4, has this statement that in this way, by doing this blood sprinkling sacrifice described in chapter 4, in this way, the priest will cleanse on behalf of the person, and they will be forgiven. And it's easy to look at that and think, oh, this is how people got into heaven. This is how they had their sins forgiven so that they could be in right relationship with God and go to heaven. What do we need Jesus for? Just to save money on animals? It's not what's going on. The word that is used there for forgiveness is a a distinct word that is never, ever, never used to describe the beginning of a relationship. You see, we, we say my sins were forgiven as a description of the entry point into a relationship with God and Jesus. And when in Leviticus chapter 4, they're using the word forgive, it is a specific term in the Hebrew that can only be used if there was a pre-existent relationship. In other words, it's a way of saying, look, you're going to sprinkle this blood, and that's how this tent's going to be cleansed. And the, the broken or damaged part of our relationship will be fixed. That's what you've got going on in Leviticus chapter 4. It never had anything to do with how people get saved. 
It has nothing to do with how people get into relationship with God. They're already in relationship with God. And this is a critical point because I think there's a huge misunderstanding out there that you can tell I get really fired up about that people in the Old Testament times were forgiven by doing this weird stuff. Yay, thank you for Jesus. I don't have to kill animals anymore. And that's not how it works. People always, Old Testament times, New Testament times, people always have been saved and brought into relationship with God through faith. That's it, through faith. And these regulations in Leviticus are about how you keep God's house clean because God so desperately wants relationship with his people that he's going to live in a tent in the midst. And then Jesus comes. Right? And you read on in Exodus or in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things. That's this tent. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words... The blood of bulls and goats was sufficient to purify and cleanse that tent. But what about heaven itself? What about that place where God really dwells? Well, you need better sacrifices for that. Verse 24, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He didn't enter that thing. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all to do away with sin in the sacrifice of himself. In other words, the priest would cleanse that thing with the blood of bulls and goats, but to go to heaven itself, Our only shot is with a better sacrifice. And this word that gets used, this word cleanse, can mean to cleanse something that is dirty. It can also mean to cleanse something so it doesn't get dirty. In other words, you can use the same word for a car wash or a car wax. Either way, this is what you're doing. So what I'm saying is the blood of bulls and goats washed that thing. The blood of Jesus waxes heaven itself, and that's your only shot of going there. It's your only shot. And that's what Hebrews chapter 9 is telling you. Jesus' blood was sufficient to cleanse heaven itself because without Jesus dying and cleansing heaven itself, we have no chance. And then you go into chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. You you get that? I mean, you know, I just made the claim that people were not saved by these sacrifices in Leviticus. And it's like, what? Uh, Can he say that? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 just said it. It can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near. It was never designed to cleanse people. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered, these sacrifices? 
For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices, are, they're just a reminder of sins. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, critical line, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This, this line used to confuse me because I thought Leviticus was how people had their sins forgiven. It was how people got cleansed from their sins. And then Hebrews chapter 10 says, oh, well, the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for them to do it. And what, where, where my head went was, oops, God screwed up. God set up this tabernacle thing so that people could have their sins forgiven. Oh, that didn't work. I guess I got to send Jesus. You know, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like you try something, it doesn't work. You try something else. No problem on a human level. Do I want to follow a God who screws that up? That's a big problem. God didn't screw it up. You see, in Leviticus, we're talking about cleansing that. The blood of bulls and goats was perfectly sufficient to cleanse the tabernacle. What the author of Hebrews is talking about is cleansing the worshiper. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse the conscience, to cleanse the person. A better sacrifice is required. Enter Jesus. I, I think I grew up with an anemic view of Christ's sacrifice. My whole view of Christ and what he did was, well, I sinned and I couldn't pay the price myself. Thanks, Jesus. I'm not saying that's not accurate. That's accurate. I sinned. A price had to be paid. Jesus paid the price. Totally accurate. But it's deficient. Because ultimately what the blood is about is cleansing the house of God. And what Jesus did is he cleansed us so that we could be the house of God. So that the Holy Spirit could live in us. That's why we don't call the church building God's house. It's not God's house. You if you have put your faith in Christ, you are God's house. And the whole point that I'm after, the whole point, is that God has gone to such ridiculous lengths just so we can be intimate with him. And when he gives standards, and when he gives rules and regulations, it's not about, oh my goodness, living the Christian life is trying to do all of these rules and regulations. It's about the fact that God wants to be close to you. So do what makes you close to him. The author of Hebrews put it this way in verse 19 of chapter 10. All right, after reflecting on Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus cleansing heaven itself, Jesus cleansing you so that you can be God's tent, God's tabernacle via his spirit. Reflecting on all of that, he concludes this section by saying, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, namely Jesus, let us draw near to God. That's it. Let us draw near to God. 
If there's one thing, one thing that I could hope to get across in a month of preaching at Mosaic, it's that God desires intimacy with you. And there are no exceptions. You cannot sit there and say, well, you know, that works for him because he studies the Bible, but wouldn't work for me. God desires intimacy with people, and he has gone to such great lengths to make it possible. And when we, by faith, accept the sacrifice that he did on our behalf, we have the confidence to, quote-unquote, enter the most holy place. We have the confidence that in our prayers, that in our long walks in the woods, that for me next month when I'm strolling along the beach in central California, God is there with me, and he desires intimacy. And, and we, we all connect with God in different ways, right? Some of you, like my wife, a, a, a walk in nature, she feels God's presence. For me, <laughs> I don't really like admitting it, but going in my basement and reading languages that have been dead for 4,000 years, I... That, I <laughs> I didn't choose it, okay? It just, it just, it just happened. But that, that's it. And I, I remember when I was, I was living in Lincoln, but studying at the University of Chicago. I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning every Monday, drive to Omaha, take the early flight to Chicago, take the train from the airport downtown, make the exchange, take the train south to where the University of Chicago is, get off the train, walk for half mile, mile, however long it was, to get to the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago to, I kid you not, study a language that's been dead for 4,000 years. (laughs) And I would have these moments on the train where I was struck by the ridiculousness of what I was doing, and yet at the same time struck by the fact that I felt God's favor in it. And that's the Christian life. That's why he wants you to remember and to reflect and to talk to him. Because ultimately God's number one desire from people is intimacy. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this amazing month at Mosaic Church. I thank you for this church and the way it has served to draw people to you. I thank you for the heart of the pastors and the directional team and the the volunteers here. I've just trying to create a space where people can meet with you. And I just ask that you would bless those efforts, Lord, and that you would help us to to walk with you, draw close to you, do those things that help us feel your presence, and uh, just help us to talk with you throughout our days. In Jesus' name, amen.